0: And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Today, we're going to close things out in the series by looking at how to read what is commonly called discourse. Another term for discourse would be something like teaching. It's the parts of the Bible that communicate concepts or ideas or instructions to us in a very direct way, at least comparatively. So, while discourse only makes up about one-fourth of our Bibles, it is in that one-fourth of the Bible that we actually learn so much about what we are supposed to do and how we are called to live as followers of Jesus. So, it's a very important one-fourth of the Bible, even though it is just one-fourth of it. So, discourse in the Bible, just if you're curious, would include things like the teachings of Jesus found in the Gospels it would include the new testament letters like uh, galatians ephesians colossians first and second peter hebrews all of those letters in the new testament But it would also include things like the laws and the regulations in the Old Testament, like we find in Leviticus and Numbers, books like that. It would include any parts of the prophetic books in the Bible where God is instructing his people or teaching his people or correcting his people in some way. Basically, if you come across it in the Bible and it is telling people what to do, what not to do, or explaining a concept it would be considered discourse. That's how you know that you're reading discourse in the scriptures. So, if either of the past two weeks about narrative and about poetry have felt a little complex to you, uh, I have good news. Discourse is generally a lot more straightforward than the other two genres in the Bible. In some ways, we actually save the easiest for last, or at least the simplest and the most straightforward for last. Because discourse doesn't usually ask you to read between the lines or interpret any type of flowery language. It simply asks you to hear what is being said, process it, and then do something with it. That's the goal of discourse. That's what discourse wants to create and generate in us. So, we actually heard that in the passage that was just read for us by Hunter in James chapter 1. James says that we aren't to just be hearers of the word, but also doers of the word is the language that he uses. So, the biggest challenge, you might say, when reading discourse in the Bible is to make sure that we actually put into practice the things that it's teaching, That's the challenge when we read discourse or teaching in the Bible. We'll circle back to that at the end of the teaching today. But for now, just like we've done the past two weeks, let's kick things off with a list of questions that we can ask when we come across discourse in the Bible. What are some questions we need to ask when we read these types of passages? We'll just work through them really quickly like we have been doing, and then we'll circle back around and actually use these questions to help show you how it works with two different passages in the Bible. So here are the questions that we ask of discourse. First, what is the main point of the passage? What is the main point of the passage? So generally speaking... A passage of discourse in the Bible only has one main point. Now, there may be multiple implications of that point. There may be multiple observations we can make of the passage... But generally speaking, there is just one big idea to each passage of discourse. So whenever you read a passage, it helps to be able to take that one big idea and put it in your own words. Sort of describe briefly what you just read in the passage. First question is what is the main point of the passage? Second question, what is the context of the passage? What is the context of the passage? As we mentioned in week two of this series, the Bible as a whole is a story. It's a story at its core. So to understand what it's saying in any particular passage, we need to read that passage with an eye to the part of the story that we happen to be in, in the moment, Another way of putting that is that we need to understand the passage's context. What part of the story are we in? Who is this being said to? What's the purpose of what is being said exactly? All of that is important to understanding the meaning of a particular passage. Next question Are there any cultural differences between the author's context and ours that might be relevant? Are there any cultural differences between the two contexts that might be relevant? So, following up on the last question, are there any differences that need to be taken into account culturally? You see, we've got to remember that between us and even the most recent writings in our Bible is about 1900 years of history and thousands upon thousands of miles. So, understandably, there's going to be some cultural differences sometimes between our society today and theirs. And sometimes those need to be taken note of if we're going to understand what these passages mean for us. So to understand what a passage is saying to us, we need to first make sure we understand what it said to its original audience. Now, sometimes the answer to this question is just going to be a simple no. Okay? Sometimes the answer is going to be no. There's not really any difference that might change the meaning of this passage. So for example, Uh, Do not commit adultery in Exodus means the exact same thing that do not commit adultery means today, (laughs) right? No interpretation needed, there's no cultural differences that would change the meaning of that passage today. And anybody that tries to tell you it is, is lying to you, right? Anybody that tries to tell you there's a difference and that we interpret that passage differently is off in what they're saying. Another one might be in the book of Ephesians. So in the New Testament, Paul writes to the Ephesian church, forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. That means the exact same thing to them that it means to us today. You don't really have to dive into the cultural context too much to understand how you might apply that in your life today. So sometimes the answer is no. No, there aren't any substantial differences that change the meaning of the passage for us today. But other times, the example is yes. Certainly when it comes to some of the stuff in the Old Testament, but even some of the things in the New Testament, you need to understand that there's a difference culturally between their day and ours. So, for example, uh, there are several passages in the New Testament where Paul tells the people of God that they are to greet one another with a holy kiss. If I walk up to our other pastor, Jeff, every single Sunday morning, and I greet him with a kiss, that means something very different today than it did back then right? So we need to understand that sometimes there are going to be cultural differences that we need to take into account to understand what a particular passage means for us today, or at least how to apply it into our lives today. So we want to ask the question, are there any cultural differences there? Next question. In light of what the author was saying to his audience, what is God saying to us? In light of what The author was saying to his audience, What is God saying to us? Once we understand what the passage meant to its original audience, the people it was originally written to primarily, we can start to bring it into our context. We can ask, How do we apply the principles and ideas and instructions that we just read in this passage? How do we bring them into our day and age? And then finally, how does Jesus' life, death, and resurrection empower or enable us to put this into practice? How does the good news of Jesus, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, empower or enable us to put this passage into practice? So lastly, as we've mentioned already in this series, discourse has two goals. First, to point us to Jesus like the entire rest of the Bible is meant to. First, to point us to Jesus, and two, for us to put what this passage teaches into practice. That's what James just indicated, is that the goal is that we would actually put into practice the things that we read. So, the last thing we ask is how Jesus, how the good news of Jesus and what Jesus came to do on planet Earth contributes to the ideas being communicated in that passage. How does it enable or motivate us to do the things that this passage says? Does that all make sense, at least in theory? I know this is a little bit lecture today. As we've said, these past three weeks are about half teaching and half lab. Like, we're just trying to learn how to do these things. So hopefully that makes sense, at least in theory. Let's use those questions now for the rest of our time to work through two different passages from the Bible. So you can kind of see how these questions work as we put them into practice. So let's start with a rather well-known passage in Matthew chapter 7. So, if you're wondering, this is the famous do not judge passage in the Bible. As a pastor in America, I have learned that there are two passages in the Bible that every single person has memorized, whether they are followers of Jesus or not. The first is John 11:35. Does anybody know what that one is? Jesus wept. Somebody called it out. Yeah, shortest verse in the Bible. Most people are aware of that verse, right? The other one is this one. Most people that I come across, whether they are Christians or not, would claim to be Christians or not, they know that the Bible says not to judge. But I don't know that all of us fully understand what that meant when Jesus said it. And so let's take a look at this passage together, see if we can discover what it means. Matthew 7, I'm going to read 1 through 5. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Verse 4. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So there we have it. Now, let's use our questions to work our way through this passage and try to discover what it might mean for us as followers of Jesus today. First question What is the main point of the passage? What is the main point of the passage? Well, at risk of being overly simplistic, the point is do not judge, right? But to elaborate just a little bit more on the full meaning of all five verses, It seems that the point is that we should examine our own sin with as much scrutiny as we examine other people's sin. That seems to be the point of the passage as a whole. We should examine our own sin with as much scrutiny as we examine other people's. That would be one way of summarizing the verses we just read. Next question. What is the context of this passage? What is the context of this passage? Well, the context is Jesus' so-called Sermon on the Mount, if you've ever heard that language before. It's sort of this manifesto that Jesus delivers to his early disciples about how they should and shouldn't live as his disciples. And as part of that, he wants them to guard against this sort of hyper-judgmental, others-critical posture that might rise up in their own lives. He wants them to guard against that way of approaching things. But additionally, I think it's also helpful to look at some of the passages surrounding this one in Matthew 7. Specifically, one of the passages after it. So just eight verses later in chapter 7, Jesus is going to say that we should also beware of, quote, false prophets, a group of people that he calls false prophets. And he says that we will recognize false prophets by their fruit, by the fruit of their life, the fruit of their character. So right there, potentially just moments after Jesus says not to judge, He is encouraging his followers to make a moral judgment about a group of people. Do you see that? So whatever Jesus means by do not judge in Matthew 7 verse 1, it can't be just a blanket statement. It can't mean don't ever make moral assessments about any people. Because otherwise Jesus just violated his own teaching, which just in general is a good indication that you've interpreted a verse wrong, right? Right? If Jesus violates his own teaching, that can't be what he meant to say there. So whatever we decide verses 1 through 5 mean in Matthew 7, it has to jive with the fact that we are to beware of false prophets. We can't interpret some of Jesus' teaching in a way that means he violates it. So with that in mind, let's keep moving. Next question. Are there any cultural differences between the author's context and ours? So this is probably an example of one time where the answer to this question is more or less no, right? There aren't any significant enough cultural differences between their day and ours that would change the meaning of this passage. We're we're to heed Jesus' instructions here just like they were, no real uh, cultural context or interpretation is needed there. So we can move on. Next question. In light of what the author was saying to his audience, what is God saying to us? What is God saying to us through this passage? Well, this one doesn't change much since there's not a ton of cultural difference, so we might just say something like this. This passage is saying to us that we shouldn't be hyper-focused on the faults of others to the exclusion of dealing with our own faults. Shouldn't be hyper-focused on the faults of others without dealing adequately with our own. That on one hand, we shouldn't be afraid to name the faults of others, but that we should do that with them only after dealing with our own faults and shortcomings first. So so that we can help see clearly to help them. That's the goal in this passage. I think it tells us that our own sin, when left undealt with, can have a blinding effect on us. That's what Jesus draws out this whole analogy of the log and the speck in order to communicate. He says, hey, if you don't deal with your sin first, the irony is you're not actually seeing clearly enough to help that other person. So you've got to make sure you deal with your own faults and shortcomings first. You need to deal with those with more intensity, more urgency than you deal with the sins of others. And lastly... How does Jesus' life, death, and resurrection empower or enable us to put this into practice? Well, for one, the more you endeavor to deal with your own sin, the more you will find that that is nearly impossible outside of Jesus. The more you endeavor, the more you undertake to deal with your own sin in your heart, the more you will discover that you're going to need Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross in order to do that. If you do not understand who you are in and through Jesus, dealing with your own sin will either feel undesirable, meaning you won't desire to do it, because it will require you admitting that you're somehow inadequate in and of yourself, or it will feel too overwhelming for you to do. You will be so intimidated by the sheer volume of sin in your own heart that you will feel crippled and defeated by it. And therefore won't want to deal with it. That's what will happen if you sincerely endeavor to deal with your own sin without Jesus. But once you understand that Jesus has come to deal with your sin, to pay the penalty for it and set you free from it as a follower of Jesus, the whole process of dealing with your own sin becomes entirely more doable, more possible than it was before Once you realize in Jesus that you are no longer defined by your sin, but rather by his resurrection life instead, your sin no longer has the same power over you that it did before. You can admit and own up to your sin freely because your sin does not have the final word on you anymore. That's how the good news of Jesus enables us to put this into practice. It helps us, it gives us the fuel by which to deal with our own sin so that we can do that and then be helpful to other people. makes dealing with your sin entirely more possible than before. So that enables us to first examine ourselves. We ask ourselves, hey, is there anything that might make me more bothered by their sin than I should be? We ask questions like, hey, is this actually a sin that they need to be engaged on, or is it just something that they're doing that I don't personally like? Those are different right? But sometimes I think we take things that other people do that we just don't like and we try to make them into a sin issue. We try to force them into some framework so that we can call them out on it. But I think what this enables us to do is it enables us to rid ourselves of the sin in our own heart through what Jesus accomplished and then we see more clearly to deal with whatever sin may be there in the other person. And chances are, that whole process is going to make you a whole lot more helpful in engaging other people on their sin than you would have been otherwise, if you would have kept the log in your own eye, so to speak. That's the point of this passage. That's how we put it into practice. So, does that all make sense? Are you following all of that, for the most part? Um, Let's go to Genesis 17 and do one from the Old Testament. Genesis 17, if you've got your Bibles. So here, in the book of Genesis, we're about to read a passage of discourse spoken by God to a man named Abraham, or at the time his name is actually Abram. God is explaining a sort of new ritual that he wants Abram to participate in, and that ritual is circumcision. So this is about to get interesting. Stay with me. So up until this point in the story, God has promised Abraham, who at this point, like I said, is named Abram, that he is going to give Abram a really big family. That's the promise that God has made to him. Lots and lots of descendants in his family, which was a really big deal in the ancient world in general, but it was especially a big deal to Abram because he and his wife were, quote, advanced in years, and up until this point, they had not been able to have any kids at all. So after giving that initial promise for a big family to Abraham, God says this, beginning in verse 9 of chapter 17, and God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. Verse 10, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and, you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, just in case there was any confusion, I guess, as to what that word meant. Uh, Now, Abraham should be abundantly clear on what God meant by this. And verse 11, It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations. How many of them, God? Every one of them, God says, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Just in case Abraham had not gotten it yet. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any circ- uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God really does not want Abraham to miss the comprehensive nature of this command, right? So how's everybody doing? Uncomfortable? I sincerely hope that somebody in this room goes and grabs lunch with their parents and or grandparents after this, and they ask you the question, what did you talk about in church? That would be amazing. And then I hope you say Matthew 7 and nothing else whatsoever. We talked about nothing other than Matthew 7. So let's be honest. This is probably a weird passage for a lot of us, right? Kind of an odd passage to be sure, but there are a lot of passages like this in the Bible It's specifically in the Old Testament, passages where God is giving his people specific instructions, but where we are reading it today and going, I don't think I have to do this, or at least I sincerely hope I don't have to do this, but at the same time we're not completely sure why that we draw that conclusion, right? There's passages where we go, I don't think this still applies to me, but I'm honestly not sure why I believe that. So let's get to work and see if we can get some clarity on all of that in this passage. First question What is the main point of this passage? The answer to this one is actually unbelievably easy, mainly because God says virtually the same thing four or five times, right? So it should be pretty easy to summarize this passage. We might say it something like this. God wants Abram's family to keep a sign of their covenant with him by having every male in the family circumcised. Like every male. He's very, God is very sure of that instruction. Question number two, what is the context of this passage? What is the context of the passage? Well, for this one, we might say that God is in the process, in these chapters of Genesis, God is in the process of reiterating, confirming, and emphasizing the importance of his covenant with Abraham. He's reiterating it, he's confirming it, and emphasizing it to Abraham. He initially makes the promise To Abraham, that he's going to have lots and lots of descendants in Genesis 12. He repeats it a few more times leading up to this passage. But here, things are about to start moving a lot faster in regards to God fulfilling this promise. And so here, in a way, I think God wants Abram to know that God means business and wants to know that Abram is ready for all of this to happen. Further, we might say that God is rolling out his plan to bless all the nations of the earth. If you've read through Genesis with us over the past few weeks, you probably are familiar with that language. This is God rolling out his plan to, quote, bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham's family. This is God's strategy for making himself known in the world through this man, Abraham and his descendants. Next question. Are there any cultural differences between the author's context and ours that might be relevant? Are there any cultural differences that might be relevant to understanding the passage? Um, This one is massively important for this passage. And the stakes are really high too, right? So it's good that it's massively important. So let me go ahead and say emphatically, yes, there are differences between the author's context in Genesis and our context today. For one example... Abraham finds himself in a scenario where God continuing his family line is the plan for God blessing the world. If you want more on that, that's in Genesis twelve thirteen. God continuing his family line is the plan for God blessing the world. Now, that's a little bit different than our context today, right? I don't know that God's plan to reveal himself to the world is dependent on any of us having children. That's a different context than the context in Genesis 17. Another important difference between the cultural context might be that circumcision was meant to be the distinguishing factor between God's people and those who weren't God's people. Circumcision was the physical defining factor that made a difference between God's people and those who weren't God's people. That was the ritual given to God's people to set them apart from the world around them. But that being said, if you know much of your New Testament, we're actually told in a few places that God's people now distinguish themselves in a new, slightly less painful type of way, right? And the way that it describes for us now is that of baptism. So take a look with me on the screen, for instance, at Colossians 2. Colossians chapter 2, 11 and 12 says this. In him, meaning in Jesus, you were also circumcised with a circumcision or a type of circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So, Apparently, in some way, baptism is now meant to take over aspects of what circumcision used to stand for, for the people of God. Baptism is now meant to be the sign of God and his covenant or his relationship with his people. Now, lots of Christians differ on the exact implications of that for baptism, and we won't get into any of that today. This is probably already complicated enough, right? But there's little disagreement about the fact that baptism is now standing in place of what circumcision used to be for God's people. So building from all of that, next question, in light of what the author was saying to his audience, what is God saying to us? What is God saying to us? Well, in light of what we just heard about baptism, it would seem that it's something like this. Just like circumcision was a sign between God and his people in the Old Testament, baptism is now the sign between God and his people today. Baptism is now the sign of the relationship between God and his people. So God still very much desires that there be an external symbol of our association with him, of our relationship, our covenant with God. It's just that now it's a different symbol, it's no longer circumcision, it's baptism. And so, just like God was in Genesis 17, we'll just call it persistent about the importance of circumcision. He is also persistent about the importance of baptism today. This is why currently we're having baptism sign up so that people can get baptized on Easter Sunday as a way to proclaim their new relationship with God through Jesus. This is why we emphasize baptism. It's why it's important to us because this is the sign of our relationship with God. It's very important in the scriptures, such that in Jesus's parting instructions to his disciples before leaving earth, he actually emphasizes baptism. It's one of the few things that he emphasizes in those last instructions to his disciples. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So in Jesus's mind, there's a one-to-one correlation. If they are a disciple, then you baptize them. If they're a disciple, if they're following Jesus, they get baptized. Just like in Abraham's day, there was a one-to-one correlation too. So though this passage does not insist on the necessity of circumcision in our day today, it does communicate to us the importance of of baptism. And even more than that, it communicates the importance of an external symbol demonstrating to the world around us that we associate ourselves with Jesus. So, last question. How does Jesus' life, death, and resurrection empower or enable us to put this into practice? How does Jesus' life, death, and resurrection empower or enable us to put this into practice? Well, when it comes to baptism, what we are actually demonstrating in that act of baptism is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's actually what we're putting on display So in the book of 1 Peter, which we're actually going to begin studying next week together as a church, it actually says that it is through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that we are baptized, meaning that when we go down underneath the water, we are demonstrating that the old version of us has died along with Jesus on the cross and that the new version of us is now alive because of him. So we are actually demonstrating the death and resurrection of Jesus through the act of baptism. So it's all about putting on display what Jesus has made possible for us. So another way that we might say this is that what baptism symbolizes, the cleansing from sin, that's the idea behind the water in baptism, what that symbolizes, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection actually makes possible. It's not the water that saves us. It's not going down underneath the water that removes sin from us. It's actually what Jesus accomplished on the cross that removes sin from us. But what we're doing when we get baptized is we're putting that on display. We're representing that to the people in the world around us. So that's how this passage points us to Jesus. So there we have a couple of examples of how to work through discourse or teaching in the Bible. And with both of those, as you can see, there are very direct ways to put these passages into practice in our lives. Because remember, the goal with teaching in the Bible of any type is never just that we would know more things as a result of reading that passage. God's goal is never just that we would grow intellectually smarter as a result. It doesn't terminate there. Sometimes it starts there, but it doesn't terminate there the goal is always that we would do something with what we know. That we would take what we've learned from the scriptures and that we would put those things into practice. That we would be, in the words of James, not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. So that means that in many ways... We are ending this teaching series on the Bible just like how we started it. Those of you that were here for week one of the series, you know this is exactly how we launched into everything about the Bible. The very first week, we talked about how one of the biggest factors in how we change as human beings are the habits that we participate in. Our habits, the things that we do over and over again have the tremendous capacity to transform us into certain types of people over time. So one of the most important questions you will ask as a follower of Jesus is not just what do you know about God, but what are you doing with what you know? One of the most important questions you will answer as a follower of Jesus, what are you doing with what you know about God? So As we wrap up this morning, let me just ask those of us in the room who are followers of Jesus that question What are you doing with what you know? Think back on the last passage, maybe even specifically the last passage of discourse or teaching that you read in the Bible. What was that passage? And then ask yourself the question What am I doing with that? What am I doing with what I read? If that passage was somehow about who God is and what he's like, how did you allow that to shape and inform how you interact with Jesus? How did you allow it to transform the way that you interact with the God of the universe on a regular basis? If that passage was about loving people, selflessly giving up your time and your preferences and your convenience to benefit those around you, did you do that? did you look for a way to put that into practice as a result? If it was a passage about repenting of our sin, about forsaking anything that would be a barrier between us and Jesus, did you do that? Did you think through your life and process what are the sins that I'm perpetually struggling with that I'm refusing to do anything about and did you do something about them as a result? If it was about loving your enemies, praying for those that make life more difficult for you? Did you do that? Did you respond by actually putting into practice what those passages said to do? You see, here at City Church, we want to be a group of people that not only believe right things about God, but people who practice right things. We don't want to just be hearers of the word. We want to be hearers and doers of the word. Uh, A really simple example of this that I don't know if you've ever caught on to, the reason that we do it, is our meet and greet time towards the beginning of each service. Some of you guys hate that with a passion. Some of you guys love it. Usually it depends on whether you're introvert, extrovert, right? The reason that we do that, though, is because we want to train ourselves to be doers of the word and not just hear. So listen, we could just get up here at the beginning of the service and go, hey guys, just a reminder, uh, the church is not a building, uh, it's not an event, it's a group of people, and then move on to the next part of the service. But chances are, that wouldn't quite get into our minds and our practices as well as going, hey guys, just a reminder, we are a group of people here. We're a church family. Church is not an event. It's not a building. It's a group of people. So therefore, turn around to the people around you and get to know somebody you don't know. Because what we know is, if I am unwilling to greet a person or two around me on Sundays there is very little chance that I'm going to learn to sacrifice for other people throughout the week. And so what we do is we not just proclaim true things about God, we actually put them into practice. It's a way of getting what is true about God, what is true about us, who we are actually into our practices, into our limbic system, so to speak. We actually put into practice the things that we know to be true. So I'll just ask you this morning, what are you doing with what you know? As you read through the Bible, as we, through the next year, go through this Bible reading plan and read all sorts of teaching and discourse about who God is and who we are and what he wants for our lives, what are you doing with the stuff that you read? Are you putting it into practice? What beliefs are you putting into practice this week as a follower of Jesus? How might Jesus' life, death, and resurrection enable you to put all of it into practice more and more as you encounter all that the scriptures have to say? Because with the entirety of the scriptures, not just discourse, not just teaching, but all of it, everything we find in the Bible, what we're after is building our lives on the things that we read. We want to read them, digest them, and then put them into practice. That's what we're called to as followers of Jesus. As we mentioned the very first week of the series, that is where personal transformation comes from. From us choosing day by day in small ways and big ways to put the teachings of Jesus into practice. And through that process, allowing the Holy Spirit to transform us into certain types of people. And that's what the life, death, and resurrection enables and empowers in us as his disciples. That's my prayer for all of us. Let's pray together this morning.